everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are joined by Daniel Buck. Actually, he's a second-time guest. You should go back and listen to our last episode with him. But now Daniel has a new book out called What is Wrong with Our Schools? The Ideology Impacting Education in America and How We Can Do Better for Our Students. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be back. So I wanted to just start by asking you about, I mean, this book, by the way, I I really recommend everyone goes out and gets it. I have a review that's coming out in commentary of the book. Um, It's so succinct and it's just, it, it, it really like, I think make parents understand, you know, what it is that kids are coming home and them these bizarre things. But I wanted to start with sort of the non kind of political stuff. I mean, a lot of our discussion about education now is very much um, on the topics of, you know, critical race theory or all the gender ideology. Um, But I wanted to start by asking about something that I started hearing about from my kids, teachers and administrators a few years ago called the flipped classroom. So can you talk a little about the flipped classroom is and how this idea was supposed to help kids, but maybe how it's not? Um, I think the flipped classroom in the ideal is supposed to put all of the onus for learning on students, which in the abstract sounds really, really nice, right? We're going to have the students do all of the thinking. We're going to have the students be doing all of the work. Um, and then that complete, the, the problem with that, though, is it removes the the purpose the authority uh knowledge of the teacher in the classroom right the teachers gonna be sitting there in the classroom anymore teaching the kids are gonna be doing all of the learning but students need a teacher they need um the the explanations of a teacher standing in the front of the board how to do basic algebra problems. They need worked examples. They need analogies. They need um, diagrams shown of various scientific concepts. This idea that, that students can just kind of sit down and discover their way into um, long division, or they're going to discover their way into uh, the laws of gravity and things like that is just silly when, it, when it's put into practice. And it doesn't work. There's academic why minimal guidance instruction doesn't work and it just tears apart this idea that if we just set students loose they're kind of going to learn by osmosis they need a teacher they need someone showing them how to do these things and that's not a bad thing that's just how humans learn we learn from experts we learn from parents we learn from teachers showing us explaining concepts and then setting us loose with structured practice with um you know activities that are intentionally designed by an adult that knows what they're doing. So, Daniel, can you just, for our audience, who are you and why do you even have the authority to to write such a book? (laughs) Um, I am a teacher. I am a senior visiting fellow at the Fordham Institute. And I actually addressed this in the first pages of my book. Um, Who am I and why do I have an authority to write this book? I don't like to frame myself as an expert. I think that's kind of an arrogant thing to do. Um, I'm a teacher. I engage in these debates in the abstract, but at the same time, I've tried to put these ideas into practice. It's really, it's fun about these things in conversations 
podcasts and academic essays, but I've been in the classroom. I've tried flipped classrooms. I've tried direct instruction. I've tried choice. I've tried um, project-based learning. I've tried all of these things and I've seen what works and doesn't. And I've seen the research play out in the classroom and I've seen schools descend into chaos because of things like restorative justice. Uh, There's just a personal experience. Um, There's a absolutely for academic research and education but there's there's i think uh an experiential um perspective that's sometimes lacking when you have a professor that hasn't been in the classroom for 20 years that's arguing about these things versus like well i tried this on monday and it, it didn't so <laughs> okay so so then well then tell us what is wrong with our schools uh i try to answer that in the opening uh, chapter of the book, we argue about a lot of trendy debates like school choice, even um, funding, class size. And now I'm I'm a proponent of school choice, but a lot of these miss um, even more fundamental issue, which is our the most popular philosophies of education out there, ideas of how students learn, uh, what the role of schools are, you they're wrong so for most of education the history of education in america our schools have been classical in nature you have a teacher who's both the expert and the authority in the classroom passing along the 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 best that has been thought and said uh the best books that are out there the heroes villains in history that we should either emulate or you know draw warning from the scientific concepts that have kind of allowed humanity to advance it is a teacher's role to transmit these to students, this sort of almost a stack of knowledge that we're passing along to them. And then in the 20th century, we had the progressive educators like John Dewey come along and say, well, there's there's no content that's worth learning in itself. We just want to train students in the skills of knowledge and critical thinking skills. We're going to set them loose to learn whatever interests them. And then in the 60s, we got an even more radical approach with Paulo Frary, Henry Garot, you know how to say his name. I've never heard it said. I've read uh, several of his books. Um, took an even more radical approach, which would say, well, schools aren't there to train students in academics. Even they're there to be the centers of academic or um, the centers of societal change, radical advocacy, things like that. And John Dewey's approach, this student-centered, just let them do what they want. It's not political. It just doesn't work very well. And then the more radical approach in the 60s is a lot of what we see in the headlines right now where kids are doing, you know, mock protests in class and of being Shakespeare or Frederick Douglass's autobiography. You you talk in the book about sort of what um, kind of how some of these texts that you mentioned are, are central in education schools now and just how wide spread um, these practices have become. One of the ideas that seems to be at the heart of them you describe is the idea that somehow um, education is sort of fundamentally an oppressive task or that teaching students is fundamentally an oppressive task. The reason to have like either flipped classrooms or student-centered classrooms or project-based learning or all of these things that sort of place the onus on the students is that's the only way we can see education as 
more freeing as opposed to this oppressive model. Can you kind of describe a little bit about where that came from and and why? I mean, it it seems quite counterintuitive, but but so many people seem to have bought into it. Yeah, I think there are kind of two ethical threads that uh, meet together and bring about this, well, the student should just be free to do whatever they want kind of approach. Uh, it began with the educational romantics, Rousseau and like John Dewey, like I said, they almost, I, I mean, roman- I said the educational romantics, they romanticize childhood, this idea that the the child is perfect and society only corrupts them. So we just need to leave them be. Well, kids are great. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, anyone who's parented a child knows that they need the <laughs> guidance of adults. They need um some, civilization <laughs> yeah they need it's civilizing like if i left my daughter she's two if i left her to do what she wants i mean she, her diaper wouldn't get changed she'd run into traffic uh she went through a phase where she hit everything when she wasn't happy um so my dog would be much less happy because my dog would be getting hit <laughs> a lot more like kids need boundaries they need instruction they need guidance they need forming um kids aren't perfect and that's incredibly controversial sometimes to say but they're not and anyone who has a parent i think knows that i love my daughter dearly i love my students dearly they need some guidance and like you said civilizing um and then the second thread again the the radicals of the 60s paulo Freire in particular mapped the oppressor oppressed dichotomy of marx onto the teacher's relationship and would say the teacher um imposing knowledge or imposing any kind of behavioral standards on the student is oppressive uh so instead the student should be entirely empowered not only to do what they want which is kind of what the educational romantics or progressive would say but the student should force their views onto society the student should be seeking to change and radically modify society and tradition and intellectual heritage and all of these kinds of things yeah. So when we when we say a kid has to be civilized, there there's a there's a a stake in the ground that you have to uh, play or define what civilization means. It means a canon. What is that body of knowledge? What does civilization mean that we're inculcating kids into? I think we a few decades ago we were arguing about what that body of knowledge ought to be. Now, I think the argument is over whether or not we should have a body of knowledge at all. Wow. Um, uh, there's a great essay, The Storm Over the University, uh, uh, that kind of chronicled the canon wars. Uh, and the the thrust of the argument is that in the popular media, people are arguing about what that body of knowledge should be. Should we read Shakespeare or Martin Luther King? Should we read, you know, do away with... Uh, Ernest Hemingway and some contemporary fiction instead. And that really doesn't get the get to the heart of it. The, the heart of the debate is if we should have a body of knowledge at all, if some books are better than others. Uh, if, you know, once you make the assertion that some books are better or more beautiful or more true than others, you're imposing a hegemonic yeah. power structure as the language progressives would use onto a student onto society itself. And we just need to get rid of that completely and completely empower the student to do whatever it is that they want. Yeah. There's a movement in the city to rid Shakespeare from eighth grade because of that, that exact, that exact issue. It's mm-hmm. mad. 
And my students so, love my students love Shakespeare, and that's so sad. I, I I actually I was thinking about your book, so I think you you probably be, maybe because you're a teacher, you have a more charitable view of um, kind of why teachers have bought into this than I do. Uh, I mean, I'm I guess the question is, you know, if you're a teacher and basically you're told that you know, your, your, your job is really to just kind of stand there and answer some questions here and there and not actually offer students, um, you know, what's called, I guess, direct instruction. You know, do you feel like you, you have an important role here? Um, and, and, you know, don't, wouldn't you sort of concede that some teachers embrace this just out of laziness? Like, you know, that, that there is kind of this moment where you're like, wait, you you haven't prepared any lesson and you don't actually have any curriculum and there's nothing that you're actually supposed to do other than just sort of stand there and wait for a kid to like come come to these, you know, grand revelations about theories of gravity or algebra. I think I do want to give a charitable reading to teachers and this discovery learning critical pedagogy, it really removes the purpose of teaching. They want to trust an article in Education Week or Edutopia somewhere when they say it's research-backed, and I'm putting air quotes up for those who can see, they're just going to trust it. And a lot of these ideas are kind of snuck in uh, under the radar with the research-backed framing because a, a professor might write, you know, uh, they haven't actually run a real uh, randomized controlled trial. They haven't uh done any longitudinal studies they might write and some academic literature on it a glorified you know opinion column that's 10 pages long about why this ought to work or i tried this in one school and kids seem to like it this very low quality quote research end quote and then that kind of gets trafficked in as research backed has it actually been studied no it's just one professor's opinion uh so i think a lot of teachers just don't no. And they're going to trust what's coming out of the universities. Uh, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal this last, how these ideas are dominate schools of education. It's what the teachers are learning. They don't know any better. They don't know any different. I shouldn't even say better. They don't know any different. That's kind of what first led me into writing and first led me into writing this book too, is I learned all the, the progressive education. I learned all of the critical theory at school or at, uh, teacher prep. I saw it wasn't working in my classroom. I looked for something different. And then I found this whole um, under almost like underground side movement of traditional education. And there's this whole body of really rigorous evidence and research that shows that it works, but it's just not being spread. It's not being talked about. And I was hoping to kind of show what some of this is from a teacher's perspective for more teachers that are looking for something that really does work, that are looking for an alternative to uh, all of these student-directed approaches that are just ineffective. One of the pieces of research that I thought was so important that you pointed out in the book was not just that a lot of this, you know, uh, student-centered learning doesn't work, that the, the kids who have the most difficulty with it and who are getting the least out of it are sort of the kids on the lower end of the learning spectrum, that they're, that, you know, sitting them down, sort of asking them to just figure it all out themselves, not only is, you know, the material, but cause enormous frustration. And, you know, I, I just, I don't think we're thinking enough about that. Absolutely. Um, there's a, an education author like Greg Ashman, and he calls it pedagogy of the privileged. 
project-based learning and all of these student-directed approaches because kids in affluent communities grow up in language-rich households. They have parents at home that can help them with these projects at home. You know, I worked in, uh, I've worked both in urban education and affluent areas, and I did some project-based learning in the affluent area. And I knew these kids would go home and they had two parents at home that could help them with research that they stumbled their way upon a, a more when they were doing research, you know, a parent could help them parse through that. There's just a lot of advantages that affluent kids have that can make project-based learning kind of work there. That just, it's not going to work, you know, in my school right now where we're almost 100% free and reduced lunch, like these kids, a lot of them can't afford poster boards. They can't just go out and buy materials or a hot glue gun when we're trying to put together some project. There's just a lot more barriers um, for kids in poor communities. So let's talk about some of these empowering alternatives, because, you know, I'm like you. I had my epiphany moment. This is probably back in 2012, 2013, when I discovered Edie Hirsch and reading cultural literacy. He Same exact thing for me. Yeah. I mean, he laid out a, a whole approach approach explaining why our schools weren't working the whole sort of Rousseauian uh logic that the child is at the center of everything and yet he laid out a much more cohesive and coherent view of structure building a body of knowledge direct instruction so so about what the empowering alternative is because there are believers right? You're not totally alone. In oh, the believers in a traditionalist approach or believers yeah, in, in, a, in a traditional approach, right? Edie Hirsch really started the counter movement. And you referenced the book, Cultural Literacy, which is just, it, it, it completely flipped how I thought about education on its head. And his argument is that factual learning and a knowledge-based approach uh, is what our students need. So an example might be, you know, an, an American academic might fancy themselves a great reader, but if you give them a reading on British sport cricket, they don't understand it because they don't know the rules of the game. They don't know any of the language that people used to talk about it. Uh, I think there's something like a sticky wicket. I don't even, I've looked it up before. I've tried to read about just to prove a point. I had no idea what those were about. I don't know any of the teams. Uh, glittering abstract ideas of what we think our students should be learning really depend on knowledge. If you don't background. know, yep. yeah, background knowledge. If you don't know American history, if you don't know uh, the great works of the Western canon, if you don't know uh, factual knowledge and theories of science, you're not going to be able to go out into the world and read an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times because you just don't have the factual base to understand what's going on. If you don't know the three inches of government, good luck understanding this 19 and deserves to know, go out into society and to be able to think critically about society. And we can sit our students down and have them try to discover their way into this body of knowledge or sit down and practice finding the main idea. I remember I had a sixth grade student 
was having, who wasn't able to pass this particular reading uh, test, and there was a paragraph. Um, it was centered around athletics, um, but you know she couldn't. There was this word uh, that she didn't wasn't able to access. It was R U G B Y, and she was like, "What is rugby? What is rugby?" And she just didn't have that sense of what even the word rugby meant. And if she did have that, then that could make more of the other words discernible. So this point about a background knowledge plays out in very, very real ways in education. Yeah, I, I have a similar story where I was showing a documentary and I realized about halfway through that the kids had no idea what was going on. And the progressive education approach would, you know, would have me ask, well, did I establish a healthy classroom culture where kids afraid to raise their hand and answer questions? Um, had we not practiced enough, you know, active listening skills and things like that. But I realized these are ninth graders. They hadn't gotten much, you know, history class on the world wars. And this documentary kept talking about the Soviet Union and had no idea what the Soviet Union was. And it wasn't their fault. They didn't know what the Soviet Union was. They'd gotten history about, you know, uh, American Civil War ancient civilizations, all of these things, but they just hadn't learned about World War One, World War II in the core yet. And it was mm. just a basic lack of actual knowledge that left this basic documentary completely incomprehensible to them. And there's students who grow up in uh, affluent households, households that are a part of the dominant culture, are going to get a lot more of this knowledge just from dinner table conversations through the books that they see on their shelf through things like that. Um, and it's unfair to everybody else that they're not getting that background knowledge, that base of factual knowledge that their other peers are getting that allows one set of students to score well on standardized tests, to go into the world, to kind of speak um, even in the, the mainstream, what we would call proper, English, and then we're going to keep that from everybody else. And then they're going to be stuck, uh, unable to comprehend documentaries, newspapers, books, um, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just and, it, and it, it's it enormously is, uh, frustrating for teachers because you know you have no idea what base of knowledge the kids who walk into your classroom have because you don't know what they were supposed to be taught the previous year or the year before right. that. And you're just it's like you're starting from scratch every day. Yeah, I've taught when I was at a Catholic school, I taught uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I got them each year for English. And it was incredibly powerful to be able to reference back to readings that we had done two years ago. Uh, you know, we would do a reading on the story of Narcissus or uh, what narcissism meant. And then we could use that language for the next two or three years to talk about characters in these books and use um you know, well, he's narcissistic. And I knew every kid in the room knew exactly what I was talking about. Or we'd read a passage from Genesis, and then my students would be able to identify. I mean, the story of creation is one of the most commonly alluded to um, works of literature or scripture across the Western canon. And having read that in sixth grade, well, then it shows up again and again and again and again and again. And by giving my students that one little bit of factual knowledge, having read the story of Genesis together, they have an incredible tool then, an incredible um, 
intellectual capacity to then analyze other works of literature just because just because we had that one bit of knowledge yeah. that we covered in sixth grade and i knew everyone in the room had it so i could s- reference um a passage i could reference it and i and i know i wouldn't have to take two minutes three minutes to explain what i meant yeah my yeah. my uh, daughter's class a couple of years ago they did a the, the whole grade did a unit on rhetoric and one of the teachers chose uh they, they basically you know left it up to entirely to the teachers what to t- what to choose for a speech that they were going to read um and one class read the gettysburg address and the other class read president obama's speech on trayvon martin and you know whatever you think of president obama's speech on trayvon martin like the fact that now one class has read the gettysburg address and the other class has not what does that mean, you know, two years from now when somebody asks them about the Gettysburg Address and they don't have any kind of base of knowledge? And also maybe it'd be useful to know the Gettysburg Address before you listen to President Obama's speech <laughs> on Trayvon Martin. But yeah, anyway. How, how, with, with what frequency is the Gettysburg Address going to continue to get referenced in movies, in newspapers and books, in casual conversation? And how often is Obama's address about uh, Trayvon Martin going to get referenced. One is going to come up f- with far more frequency and has influenced far more in media than the other. Uh, so it, it just, even from a purely utilitarian standpoint, it would benefit students far more to probably have read the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Well, Daniel, we do not want to keep you from your students any longer. We so appreciate your taking the time today uh, to talk with us. And we encourage everybody to go, bo- go out and buy the book, what is wrong with our schools? And thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's always a blast. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe.